Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and today's episode, we are going to talk about how I apply neuroscience, neuroscientific principles, and neurodiversity to homeschool education. Now, you know I'm just a mom, so am I a neuroscientist? No. But it's interesting to me that there is a lot of research that is just backing up what we kind of already knew as parents already. Now, I'm sure a lot of Montessori teachers and parents feel very validated with a lot of research coming out today. And I would even say a lot of neurodivergent individuals should feel empowered for a lot of the research that's coming out today. Because it's not necessarily it's I would argue it's new language to justify what we've experienced but a lot of it is not new and when I say not new what do I mean by that it's because there's a book that I've thrifted that talks about when it comes to teaching reading and I fell in love because it mentioned two people I really admire which is Rudolph Flesch and Jan Chal and I know not everybody's gonna like Rudolph Flesch but his book is a primary source of pointing out a huge problem in 1955. And that was our huge bookmark for school issues in that era, right? But a lot of people even today will still argue about how to learn to read. We don't have to anymore. The wonderful neuroscientist Stanislaus Dehaene has done that for us. And we know structured literacy works. We have years of dyslexic students, even myself, learning to read with phonemic awareness and phonics and learning the alphabetic code because once you break the code then you can read right well the interesting part i found in this book is that it bothers me to this day that when you look at literacy scores and you see how abysmally low that they are that we don't see the seriousness of our current situation because if you don't know how to read what can you really do in education besides twiddle your thumbs You need reading as a prerequisite to learn math, to learn spelling, to learn grammar, to learn writing, to enhance your speaking, and to understand listening. And I think a big change, and I've read other books that have said that, is when we shifted as a society from valuing oratory or just, you know, public speaking, and we shifted to more silent reading. And that was a big change. And also it comes with that, you know, a lot of people are, I think, are okay. I I can't remember. I remember learning in school or whatever that the local newspaper was like only like at a fifth grade reading level. And it was because that was like the highest reading level as an average in our state. And it was interesting because I remember I was exactly in fifth grade and we were being forced to learn all these SAT words to help us in our vocabulary for essays that we had to write. And it was just very much of a dichotomy for me to understand that, well, if the adults in my town only read at my grade level, but I'm in that grade and I'm expected to read at like, like a collegiate level, what is the point? Like, what what is going on? Shouldn't we be remeeting the adults first? Like, it didn't make sense to me. And... I think it's important to understand that in the past, we it's not that we didn't know about neuroscience. We just thought of it in a different format, I would argue, because this wonderful book says that 
it doesn't, I, you know, I'll say right here, right now, it doesn't say, oh, your kid needs a love of learning. Oh, it, they need to love reading before they learn to read. No, it doesn't say that. It says the first thing that indicates a child is ready to learn how to read, which I don't, I don't really agree with that either, but that they are okay enough to sit, I guess, for instruction to learn how to read is number one, develop visual and spatial perception. And it's to make sense with from what is seen, which means they need to distinguish sounds and associate them with people or events. And I think that is huge because it goes with phonemic awareness, but also with dyslexia, we know it is a discrepancy be- between recognizing sound and images. And even though we have a visual spatial strength, our mind is very much in a 3D capacity. And we kind of have to map that before we can understand it, right? So number two, it says also associate spoken words with physical objects and with simple ideas. So it says you have to figure out the muscular process of producing words. And I mean, obviously, we know from speech language pathology, that's, you know, orthographic mapping and understanding how your mouth moves. And... They're very complex skills based on no prior experience. And if you don't have a parent modeling that for you, how do you know the difference between your lips touching to say B and your lips not touching to say D for D? Like, how would you know? And number three is understand the time relationship of sequence of events and be able to conceptualize a sequence from its narrative description. Which I've seen recently that a lot of schools do that later on after a phonics instruction lesson, which is probably not great. Um, Because you need stories to make sense and stories depend on a time sequence. And you need to be able to understand that complex trains of abstract logic or thought should be understood before the story is taught, right? Like, that's why I couldn't understand about the whole predictable books because you were trying to get a kid to do two skills at once where they probably need to work on a sequence of a story first before they understand how to guess or where to guess. You know what I mean? Um, And then number four is begin to recognize visual printed words, which is, you know, print awareness. And you understand the symbols of spoken word, which in turn are symbols of objects and ideas. And the complex process of different for each individual relies on a mixture of these decoding keys. And number five says recognize more words by, you know, different type of cues. You know, a lot of balanced literacy advocates will say, well, they need reading cues. Well, there's different types of reading cues. There's linguistic cues, which are comparisons of similar words or reach meetings. And then there's contextual cues. They're seeing words that can make sense in the sentence. And then there's phonetic cues. So linguistic cues could lead to words not yet known in the speaking vocabulary. And I remember that as a kid because like I remember hearing a word and kind of understanding what it meant by the context, but I still didn't know how to spell it. And I still needed that phonemic awareness to understand how to break it down to be able to spell it, even though I knew what the word probably looked like and what it was, but not how to break it down. And then six is perceive meaning for groups of words, which is how speed reading picks up, which is what we know is kind of like, you know, sight words or high frequency words. Then seven is understand meaning from a flow of printed words, often completely bypassing the sound out process, even mentally, which 
Seven is when you turn a word that you're learning into a permanent sight word into your brain, right? And I love how it goes into phonics. And it just breaks it down as to meaning the process of sounding out words according to a set of alphabetic rules describing those sounds made by the letters in the alphabet and the letter combinations. And it mentions even the McGuffey readers of how, like, they were used and that, you know, the turn of the century, we really did value more public speaking than we do today. And I'd argue, I mean, there's probably a lot of neurodivergent people that hate public speaking. I know my mom hates public speaking. And I know, like, I don't, I don't even remember if I liked public speaking, but I was just thrown into it as a child. Um, so I don't remember knowing enough to like it or not like it. But I think it's so important because a lot of people stress on fluency or automaticity or speed of reading. And they don't understand that if a child doesn't have that practice of storytelling or just, you know, using their voice outside of an education element, if they have have fun with storytelling, those help build literacy skills. And especially with Gestalt language processors, I mean, if there's a favorite script from your show, you're definitely going to recite that faster than, you know, sounding out a word that you've never seen before. But I think what's interesting about this book is it mentions even an educational pendulum swing at the time. Like, that phrase is so old, but people still use it to this day. And... I think it's important to say that, like, I don't think that it, we should set anything for an arbitrary time or an age. So I know there's a lot of people online that'll be like, oh, well, you know, start teaching your kid to read at this age. Or, you know, don't wait until this age. Or, you know, we even know from the public school system, they love to wait to fail until third grade. But I would argue that, you know, it's really the relationship between the parent and the child and seeing those cues and knowing when they are ready or maybe even when they're asking you to teach them how to read or you know asking when will I learn to read at school those are the kind of cues you want to look out for and then wonderfully today especially in 2024 you have a show like reading buddies on YouTube so you can practice those things now to get them ready for the future but also very important research has found that babies learn how to speak and they learn language acquisition from rhythmic language which is like songs before phonics so even this book even though it's old it says sing sing to your children your child's sense of melody and rhythm can develop naturally and music conveys feelings of love security and inspiration while it teaches words and concepts so it's hilarious to me because how many people will say oh coca melon is so bad for kids who cares if it's a song like if kids are interested in something and they're learning and they're singing along, let them. Let them have that joy. But I would also point out that I love this book mentions how, you know, I would argue, you know, a lot of dyslexia advocates will tell you straight up, like, just reading to your kids is not going to teach your kids. Your kids need structured literacy. But there are a few things that you can do in your home to help make literacy more accessible. And number one is setting aside time as a family to read together each day. Now, this can be read aloud. So that's huge in homeschool where you pick a book connected to the subject or the topic you're teaching and have a read aloud. And the older your kids get, they can participate in that read aloud. Um, And I would argue as a parent, 
kids need to see you read. And I would argue it's not just for fun. They need to see you read a recipe book. They need to see you read a dictionary. They need to see you read an encyclopedia. If you don't know something, don't just quickly go to Google and expect Google to spit it out to you audibly. You go to Google and show them how you read. Modeling that is huge. But also allow time for questions and discussion. Don't underestimate the power of communication as a powerful tool for literacy. And keep the length of your reading time and the choice of your material within the, it says the maturity level of your child, but I would just say in the interest of your child. But also don't be afraid to try something that might be on the difficult side. Know when to attempt. Like if they're in a really good mood or if it's like a birthday, go ahead, get like a reference book that they might be interested in on a topic. You know, it's okay to start something and go back. Give yourself that permission. Um, also when you read several children's books at once, remember that older ones, like older children will still enjoy picture books. I hated this in school that it felt like we were too old to be given a read aloud for a picture book. Like it's still fun. They're still enjoyable. And it's important for us to remember that nostalgia and don't get burnout from certain books and remember how fun they are to read. And we also need to actively practice reading aloud. It is a skill. And I really resent growing up where we didn't know about neurodiversity and people picked on kids with stutters or kids that didn't know how to sound out words. And I remember the teacher literally picking that student to go because they knew they would like stretch out the time in the classroom. Like, that's not okay. But also... Both parents should read to the children. It shouldn't be a designated job for one parent. Mom, dad, two mom household, two dad household. All parents, and I would argue all family members need to read to the children. Because they need to hear different voices. They need to hear different cadences. They need to hear different speeds, different rhythms. They need to hear that difference. And they'll pick up on all of it. But also it says, number one, you control the TV. And you should not compete with the TV. Now, I'm not a hater of screen time, but I agree with this because if it comes to be a point of contention between you and your child of, oh, they won't listen to you unless the TV's off, that's a red flag. And that's a learning opportunity because you need to understand that your connection is powerful with your child And they're not going to get the same connection from a screen. They're not going to get the same connection from AI. They're not going to get the same connection from anybody else. And, you know, books are great. But also, I mean, you still, you shouldn't be competing with a book for your kid's attention either. So just, I mean, that's a basic parenting tip is like, you know, just value that connection with your child. Um... But I think it's just interesting how things go on. Now, in a more updated book, when it talks about the brain and learning, you might have heard the term differentiation. And I've seen and read a lot of older books that even mention this. It is not new. And I love how this book even says it is not a new concept. And how do we know this? We can think back to the one-room schoolhouse of the early 1900s where one teacher had to educate children of varying ages and grade levels at the same time in a single classroom. 
The teacher had to be an expert in differentiating curriculum and instructional strategies and assessment techniques using only a few resources, which would be chalk, a slate, and some books. The students still learned, however, literacy, arithmetic, penmanship, and good manners. So it's interesting because obviously we know from that time it was because only a few children had the privilege to learn if their families could afford that for them. But why did we sacrifice that quality of instruction just because we integrated and we had a diverse student population when we had larger public schools? It doesn't make sense, right? We should have kept the differentiation. And I think I'm happy to see more schools embrace structured literacy and differentiation into the curriculum these days. And I know as a homeschool mom, I have to do that as well. But it's interesting because the most proponents of public school will always say what? Oh, we need money. Oh, we need funding. Oh, the problem is we don't have enough funding. Why don't you do an audit and see where that money that you already have is going? Because when you throw money at a problem and you see a new stadium get built, money wasn't the problem. If back in the day, kids were more literate from chalk and slate, what are we doing with smart boards today? What's the point of technology if our kids are learning less instead of more? You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And I love how this book emphasizes that differentiation emphasizes shared responsibility between teacher and student because the brain that does the work is the brain that learns. And that's why, I mean, when you're a homeschool teacher, you are learning alongside your own child and you are learning so much. And another point is that differentiation is not revolutionary. It's not even extraordinary. It's simply teaching mindfully with the intent to support the success of each human brain for how it is wired. And it's not to say that you have to know exactly how that works. It's just you have this different materials available and you have all these opportunities at your disposal to make the lessons different. And if something's not working for a student, try something else. If that doesn't work, try something else. So I love how it has like kind of this, um, what are these called? Like the mind maps where it says like differentiation. Um, a teacher's response to learning needs and shaped by the mindset. So you have different tasks and the teacher can differentiate through content, the process, product, or the environment. And then according to the student by their, you know, readiness level or their interest level or their certain strengths and challenges of their profile. And that's so important with neurodiversity because we all have a spiky profile and it depends on the day. I mean, if the kid's having a really good day, you might be able to get them to do more work than you're used to. But if they're having a terrible day, don't expect them to pump out 20 pages of worksheets, right? Like, that's just not realistic. And... I love how it talks about environment because a lot of people forget that environment is a huge teacher. And I honestly give environment a lot of credit in my homeschool setting because we, well, and I learned this from another homeschool book is that sometimes it's fun to, you know, depending on the subject that you're learning about that day, you can say, well, welcome to our science room. Now you might know it as our kitchen, but today it's our science room and we're going to do some science experiments and make it fun. 
And, you know, I see some really good teachers on Instagram that do do that in their classroom. But also you see these teachers that claim, oh, I need to pour $5,000 into this classroom to make it feel homey. And that's also not true. There are a lot of explicit teachers around the world that have, again, one classroom, one piece of chalk, one slate, and they still get through to these children. And it's because of the, not just knowledge between the teacher and the student, but that the teacher wants to communicate that knowledge to that student. And it's that working relationship and that professional development that you build between each other And I think when it comes to our society, we forget that monetary compensation not only disconnects somebody, but when you're not getting adequately or, you know, properly compensated for that work that you're doing, you cannot blame a teacher for getting disconnected. You cannot blame a student for telling that that teacher is disconnected. I remember as a student being so sympathetic to a teacher because we knew they weren't getting paid enough. We knew that there was still a struggle. And we knew that also our parents couldn't foot the bill for what they were asking for. So it was like a twofold struggle of like poverty hurting poverty. And when you have so much funding and you see the stadiums being built and you see the expectations bricks going up and you see the expensive bleachers going up and you see, oh, they're supporting that revenue stream because they're going to see that money back in ticket sales. Like that's not fair. And also when it comes to neurodiversity, like we have a keyboard piano, we have like little toy ukuleles, we incorporate music and creativity and We don't exclude that because we know that the brain craves that novelty. The brain craves that ability to create. And there's a lot of research now that's proving that, you know, movement helps mental health and that creating helps mental health. And these are real life solutions that are not, you know, based in pharmaceutical industry. And you don't necessarily need a doctor's note to go out in nature. You don't need a doctor's note to color in a book. You don't need to see a middleman to help yourself. And I don't understand why that scares people. I wish that would empower people that if we have the tools and we have the history and we know what works, why aren't we doing it? Especially when, you know, we have something like neuroscience and we know about neuroplasticity and we know how strong our brain is and we know how emotions can get in the way of our learning and that kids have to be safe. And that's why you see in homeschool communities, the kids are learning more because they're in a safe environment. And I don't want to scare people off. Um... But I think the schools can learn a lot, honestly, from homeschool parents and homeschooled children. And I think our community could benefit if more people collaborated versus competed. But that's all the time that we have for today. I do want to thank you so much for joining and listening to me rant and rave. Um, Some episodes are going to be like this, where I just have more to talk on. Some episodes will be like the last time, where it was just like about 15 minutes. So let me know which kind of format you like most. If you want me to talk more, I will. But if you want me to talk less, that's an option too. Just hit me up on Instagram at the Neuroforming Parent Podcast. Let me know how you feel. 
But until then, remember, integrating neuroscience principles doesn't have to be scary in your parenting, in your homeschool, in your work life, in your own life. You can use these skills to revolutionize your own personal philosophy of how you approach anything in life. But for now, this is your host, the Neuroforming Parent, signing off.